And he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. After that, he put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up. And he was restored and saw every man clearly. And he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town nor tell it to any in the town. And Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elias, and others one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answereth and saith unto him, Thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected of the elders, and of the chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he, saith unto, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel's, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever, therefore, shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I have read to the end of the eighth chapter. Let's kneel for prayer. O oh, Father in heaven, holy, righteous, all-powerful, the one who created this world, who sustains everything, who allows the grain to grow, that made the bread that we ate this morning, the one who gives us the breath that we are breathing now, to thee we pray this morning. We pray also to thee, Jesus, Son of God, a man just like us, a man who hungered, thirsted just like us, and yet a man who did miracles like no other man, who multiplied that bread, who fed 4,000 at once, 5,000 at once, with just amount of food that one person could hold in their hand. We pray to thee also, Son of God, God the Son. Holy Spirit. God the Spirit, we pray to thee also, thou who art in our hearts, speaking, has been there, was there when we did wrong things and we grieved thee, and is there helping us, convicting us, 
who is in the hearts of those that don't know thee yet, convicting this world of sin. We pray to thee also, do thy work. Multiply these physical words that are spoken this morning, this bread of life, into the hearts and the lives of these that are gathered here. Those that don't believe thee, those that claim to believe thee, that are weak in faith. Dear Father, that's all of us in one form or the other. Dear Father, we thank Thee for this opportunity to hear this living word. We know it is from Thee. It's not from any man. It's not something we could, if we looked in our pockets, we would see there's nothing. There's a few loaves, a few fishes. We need the bread that's from heaven. Not another sign, not something that goes according to our standards or our thoughts or what we think we need, dear Father, but we need that bread from heaven that will make a difference, that will give life. And that bread from heaven is Jesus Christ, who has given himself for the whole world. We pray that he would be preached this morning hour. We pray that he would be received this morning hour, not just in, in word or, or in our lips as we would sing these hymns, but in our hearts, in obedience, in lives that would be changed, in, in footsteps that would be following his as we would pick up our crosses. Each one of us, we know what they are. We're shying away from them, perhaps. Dear Father, convict us and help us. Show us where and how we need to follow the footsteps of our gracious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Dear Father, we pray as we have already prayed for those that are suffering in the flesh this morning. We pray for Sister Sigurd. We pray that thou wouldst help her, ease her pain, her difficulties. We pray that there would be an opportunity for her to have the heart valve replacement. There are many other needs. We, we know in our own congregation, those with chronic illnesses that have been suffering for a long time. Dear Father, be with them and strengthen them. We pray for little Jacob Weinhardt this morning. We pray that thou wouldst be with him and help his parents and pray for healing for him. Pray that the, the uh, sur surgery that he is to undergo would go well. Dear Father, we pray for the government. We don't even know exactly what to pray. We, we look at the fallen men that are in positions of power and authority and we shake our heads and we go, we see thy word, we know it's not right, dear Father, but we are commanded to pray and we're commanded to pray in faith, knowing that thou art above all and that thou hast allowed and appointed and set in place. So dear Father, we pray for them, we intercede for them, we pray that thy will would be done even as this world goes further and further off kilter, as things get worse and worse. We pray, dear Father, for those that are in authority. Dear Father, we pray all these things, confessing our own weakness, our own inability, dear Father, and confessing also our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. I've often thought of Mark's gospel as kind of like a photo album. Snapshots from the life of Christ, uh, moments in time. Less of a documentary, say, of his life and more just, just moments, a, a time, an attitude, something that, that uh, the apostle or that the that Mark wrote down, many think it was the accounts from Peter that were recorded. 
And these were the events that stood out in the mind of that disciple. And it seems to make a lot of sense with some of the references there. I'm sure Peter thought often about those comments that the Lord directed specifically at him. This particular passage opens with a familiar account. Jesus was teaching, and the multitudes came together to see him. I wonder sometimes how the word got out. I mean, obviously, when miracles were being done, people would tell others, and of course, if you had a, a loved one or a, a family member that had some kind of physical problem, you'd want to take them to see this, this miracle healer especially since he didn't charge any fee. So he attracted many, and it says, the publicans and the sinners came to hear him gladly. The sinners. Those that knew they had a problem came to hear him gladly. That tells me something, I think, about the character of our Lord when he was, uh, still has the same character, but that was evident when he was here in the flesh. An approachable man a kind man, one who didn't turn away those who were in need, the one who had always time for those that came. We read accounts of how you know, his disciples were even concerned for his health because so many were coming to him, but he didn't turn them away. And it was Jesus that said, I have compassion on the multitude. Think about that for a moment. The Son of God become flesh, deity on earth. And he's characterized with this kind of compassion, this care, this concern. Where will you find that same kind of concern or love for you among the pantheon of gods and deities that other people worship? What other god or ideal will you serve that is concerned for you and for your well-being? Who has compassion on you? Other gods and religions can offer perhaps a version of justice. I'm sure many people here are familiar with the idea of karma. But what about compassion? What about mercy? I think we all know that we need it. We're loath to show mercy to other people, but we know we need it. And there's one who is merciful to us and shows compassion on us. They'd been there three days. No doubt whatever they had brought with them to eat was long gone. Perhaps those that had brought a little bit extra was shared out among those that were there. And now there was nothing to eat. For us, we have the opposite problem. Sometimes we have a lunch that's a little too big and then the afternoon service is a little hard to focus. But I don't think too many came here this morning with empty bellies. It really shows how important they judged these words of this man. More important than daily bread.
He says, I won't send them away fasting. And his disciples ask the obvious question, how? How, Lord? We're here in this wilderness. If the food starts running low, here we can run to the great Canadian superstore down the road. They've got whatever you need. Food for a multitude, no problem. There's fast food places that'll have things ready for takeout. But in the wilderness, nothing. Jesus asks them to do an inventory. You may find that kind of odd. I mean, how much could they have scraped together? But Jesus did this, I think, not for his sake, but for ours. That they would know how little they really had. That they would understand the situation rightly. You see, Christianity is not about pie in the sky by and by. It's not about fairy tales and good thoughts. That's the realm of Disney. It's about a God who meets us where we are at our level of need, who has compassion on us and fully acknowledges the dire nature of the situation we may find ourselves in. The disciples knew seven loaves was never enough for 4,000 people. I mean, we have 1,000 people at camp and that's a big number. One of my girls said to me the other day when, you know, when she thinks about uh, sizes of, of crowds, she thinks, well, camp's about 1,000 people, so that's like three or four camps, right? It's, it's a lot of people. We know how much food and ice cream we eat every year at camp. 4,000 in the wilderness with no refrigeration, no trucks, no modern logistics. And Jesus says, have them sit down. And he involved his disciples in this. I think that's interesting. Jesus didn't just call manna from heaven. He could have. He did it before. If you remember the words from Scripture, it says, and that rock that followed them was Jesus Christ. He was the one who was continually providing for them water for the day, manna from heaven, quails in the wilderness, providing for them day by day. But now, in this fullness of time, Christ comes and he uses his disciples to distribute. Of course, the disciples could have snuck a few mouthfuls maybe before it was spread out to the crowd, make sure that they got enough before it was distributed. I don't think they did that though. I think they just simply followed Christ's instructions. You see, if he had grabbed his, or if he had chosen his disciples from the intelligentsia, the qualified, if he had gone through the bios of, of potential disciples to pick the very best of the best, the A-team, to spread his gospel. I don't think he would have had the simple fishermen that would have just followed his instructions. Other men would have tried other things, maybe. But Jesus used simple people to provide. There was a few small fishes. Doesn't even tell us how many exactly here couple of dried sardines, you know, in that day and age. In terms of food, I think there was only about three portable types of food, and four if you include fruits, I guess, and vegetables that have to be consumed fresh. You had bread, you could take that with you, 
provided carbohydrates, protein, salted meat, something dried that wouldn't spoil, or pre-cooked if you ate it fast enough. Cheese would keep for a little while. You could take some of that with you. So someone obviously had a lunch, lunch pack with them and a couple of small loaves. Those loaves were not loaves like this. They were probably just like a pita, something small. You can picture the disciples breaking this off. Uh, maybe don't give too much to the first few people. We've got to stretch this a little bit. And then imagine their amazement as things continued to multiply. Each bite they ripped off, the cake didn't get any smaller. It would have been interesting to watch their faces when they realized that. So they did eat. That's everyone. And were filled. Nobody left hungering. And then it says, of the broken meat that was left, there were seven baskets. And if we look later on, it says 12 baskets for the other time that was given. And from what I understand, the 12 baskets were like personal portions, like a satchel that you'd take with you. And these baskets were large baskets that could be shared out. When God blesses, he blesses with an abundance. It may not always be clear at the beginning how that's gonna happen, but God blesses with an abundance. I, I believe that, though my faith is weak. I trust that his abundance will be there in time and that there will be a gathering up of those things that are left over. And we will be able to say, not only was there a miracle that God provided for the day, but there was even extra besides. From there, it says they went to Dalmanutha, across the, across the sea of Galilee, which is really just a kind of a large lake. And the Pharisees came forth. They began to question him, seeking a sign from heaven, tempting him, not because they wanted some real evidence to believe, but to, to provoke him. You see, faith, true faith, is not of an experimental nature. There has to be a little bit of genuine faith, and it doesn't need to be much. We remember the parable, the grain of the mustard seed. It doesn't need to be much, but it has to be real. And God will not allow people to toy with him. These Pharisees were looking for excuses not to believe. And if that's your angle, if that's the direction you're coming from, I'm looking for reasons not to believe. God will not satisfy your curiosity. They that will come to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Those are his words, not mine. You know, in our modern age of online reviews and YouTube videos. We go do our testing ahead of time. And then if we like it, and we like the price, then we might buy. And even then, we may return it anyway because we decided we didn't want it. Faith in God is not like that. It requires a committal, a wholehearted committal, even if that faith is small. He asked the obvious question, Christ did, why doth this generation seek after a sign? Ask yourself that question too if you're asking God for a sign. Why are you looking for one? What proof would satisfy you? 
Have you considered that? We heard a testimony uh, just last, was it last week? One of the souls in Richmond Hill that was uh, taken up. She was looking for these signs. One more reason to believe, one more reason to believe. And she was, uh, as she testified, she was very interested in the realm of apologetics and, and learning things to confront those that had an atheistic worldview or had a materialistic worldview. And really she was covering for herself. She realized that she didn't fully believe. And God had to tell her, no, it's not a proof you need. It's faith, a little bit of faith, and I can work with that. But no amount of proof to satisfy the intellect will ever be sufficient. I think I've used that reference before, but when man died, when, when Adam and Eve died spiritually in the garden, it's as if there was an organ, a part of them that had the capacity to know and to understand God at a spiritual level, to commune spiritually, and that organ died. And in its place, man was left only with his intellect to understand God. He was spiritually dead. And the problem is, with the intellect, we can only know about God. But we cannot know God through our intellect. And thank God for that. Think of all the people that would be damned if it was simply dependent on intellectual ability to understand. Think of the simple-minded ones, the innocents, the children, that don't have the ability to reason, but can at least believe that there is a God in heaven who loves them and has compassion on them. Simple faith. The world mocks at it. But how else would a gracious and generous and merciful God deal with his fallen creation? What would be a better way? I challenge you this morning to come up with a better way that would be more gracious than what he's already done. The one who has compassion on us in our situation. They left again, and the disciples forgot to take bread. And Jesus gives them a warning. He says, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. What might that mean? I'm not entirely sure, but I'll give you my opinion at least on it, and perhaps the Lord will bless it. They represented the two extremes of people coming to God. One on the one hand, the Pharisees, self-righteous religiosity, a determination to earn their place in the favor with God and to despise those who were less than them. Beware of that leaven because it can creep in. I think any of us who have served the Lord for any length of time have felt the tug, the pull, the attraction of that sort of thinking, especially if you're inclined to be doing and busy in the Lord's work, to think that you have more worth or value because you do that versus those who seem to do less in your eyes. Beware of that leaven. But beware of the leaven of Herod too. So what is the leaven of Herod? I think it's religious pragmatism. Doing what works, doing what has influence, and using that influence for what you think might be the, the good. 
It was Herod that built the fantastic temple that was in Jerusalem. He built it as a way to curry favor with the Jewish populace, to impress them because he was only a, a partial Jew, an outsider, an Idumean, not really one of the chosen race. But he thought that by putting the expense and effort into this temple, not only would he make a name for himself, but he'd win the favor of the people. This is the kind of marketing that goes on, I think, in many megachurches, where they look, they look for the, the programs and the, and, the, and, the, and the ways that they're going to pull people in. It becomes a marketing and a business exercise, as opposed to a sowing of seed. We have to be aware of that as well. We cannot get sophisticated in our worldly wisdom thinking that we can do things in a certain way that will ultimately benefit the kingdom. If it's about bringing people through the doors, well, then the ends justify the means and whatever we need to do. I mean, I've seen some ridiculous church signs sometimes about some of the things that they advertise. Super Bowl Sunday for the guys. What does that have to do with Christ? What does that have to do with eternity? A couple years later, no one even remembers who won. But if it brings people in, beware of the leaven of Herod. Now, the disciples misunderstood that. I'm so thankful that they did because that helps me feel a little bit better when I don't understand things that the Lord says in his word. He says, look, the disciples thought, well, it's because we didn't bring bread. We forgot bread again. Oh, you know, we, we can be hard on ourselves because we, we left something out. And Jesus says, no, come on. Don't you remember what I did with the 4,000 just a short time ago and with the 5,000 before that? Even though God provides for us in the past, we have trouble believing that he can provide again in the future. Our fallible nature and our lack of faith does that to us. And I'm not speaking as one who's already attained those things because I admit my faith is weak. And I wonder somehow how the Lord's going to provide. And I don't know. But I'm instructed from his word to trust him. You listen to these brothers up here not because we have it all together or that we know or that we're speaking from a position some kind of position of authority. No. The Lord selected us, laid on us this burden. And like Paul says, woe unto us if we preach not the gospel. And we preach it to ourselves, not just to you. It's true. Came to a blind man next. I think we'll finish perhaps with, with this section as time is getting away from us. A lone blind man who couldn't see. And Jesus does something in our eyes repugnant. Spits on the eyes of the blind man. Can you imagine that? I have trouble even picturing that. And I don't know the circumstances. Mark just simply records it. This is another thing I think that is the mark of authenticity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because if it had been me, I would have doctored it up a little bit. I would have done something a little differently there. But it simply says it, reported a picture, a moment in time, no explanation given. He spit on the man's eyes. Then he laid his hands on them, probably wiped them clean, and asked the man if he saw anything. 
And that's a good question, I think, for all of us. What do you see? What do you see when you look at Jesus? Christ must have been the first person he saw. When he wiped the spittle from his eyes and the man opened his eyes and saw unclearly for the first time that silhouette of that man from Galilee. And it's interesting that it took two times. Why was that? Was Christ's power insufficient? He had to have a do-over? No. Perhaps there was a little bit of a lack of faith on the part of the blind man. Didn't totally understand yet. And Christ was patient with him. He did it again. He says, now I see clearly. There was a story, and perhaps I'll close with this. There's a very famous hymn writer, one of the greatest hymn writers of all time, Fanny Crosby. You may know her by her many hymns. We have a number of them in the gospel hymns. And someone was commiserating with her because she was born blind. She could not see. And she said, or it was said to her, you know, oh, as, as, as a poet, as a, as a hymn writer, you must be so disadvantaged, uh, must find it a burden, a real burden, that you cannot see the beauty of a sunset or the petals of a flower or the stars at night, these great sights, these wonders of creation. And apparently Fanny said back, no, no, you, you misunderstand me. You don't understand the great benefit I have. She says, do you realize the first person I will ever see will be Jesus Christ? Christ alone, the one who had compassion on her. What a beautiful thought. One who could <clears throat> look beyond her disadvantages, especially in the eyes of the world, and see the glory and the blessing that was awaiting. Whom do men say that I am? Christ asked that question, and we, we had an in-depth Bible study on it not that long ago. They went up to the north to the area of the Gentiles, to Caesarea Philippi, the, the seat of Roman power in that area with its beautiful ruins and weren't ruins then, they were, of course, fantastic new buildings, modern architecture. They went to see that, and they, they gazed on the, the wonder of the might of man and what Caesar and the, and the word of Caesar could accomplish in a far-off land. And then Jesus asked the questions, who, who do men say that I am? I'm sure the people in Caesarea Philippi didn't have two minutes for this itinerant preacher from Galilee and his rabble of fishermen. He was no one of note, no one important from Rome that had arrived with dignitaries and soldiers. But that question is so searching because then Jesus turns around and says, who do you say that I am to his disciples? That question does not seem so important in this life, perhaps. We can 
walk the edges of that question. And we can answer it like the people did. He could be one of the prophets, or he's a good man at least, or he's a, perhaps even a teacher come from God. But at that last day, what will you say? Your end is coming too. One day, we will all leave this planet unless the Lord returns before then. What will you say then? Who will you say Jesus was? Jesus told the Pharisees, one day you will seek me and you won't be able to find me. And those words have always been so chilling to me because it tells me that there's a realization on the other side of death, that there was an opportunity, there was a Savior, and I missed him. And now I need him. And he's not there for me. That is the supreme regret. That's the real danger, that we reach the other side of the grave. Existence doesn't stop at death. It's only a doorway. We continue to go on. We are made in the likeness of God, and that means we are made for eternity. But on that other side of the door, for some it will be too late. I pray that for no one here, it will be too late. But now, well, you have an opportunity. You'll hear the voice of the one who had compassion on the multitude. That traveling preacher that came to share our griefs and woes, who suffered in our place to make the way as open as possible for everyone to come to him. That's the foolishness of the gospel. I can't add anything more to it that might tickle your intellect or make it more appealing. I can only present him as he is. Whom say ye that he is? May the Lord add whatever was lacking to what was said. Would a brother please select a hymn? Hymn number 86, verses 1 and 6. 86, 1 and 6.
Our Holy Father in Heaven, looking down on us this day, we come before you in this place of worship, Lord, gathered together in your name, feeling your presence, knowing that where two or three are gathered, you are with us, Lord. We truly can't say anything but thank you for the blessings you've already poured out on us at the beginning of this day, Lord, with the blessing of sunshine, the blessing of health and the ability to gather together freely, Lord, the ability to travel from near and far unmolested and unafraid that we would arrive safely, Lord, maybe taking that for granted as well because we've had such ease in the past, Lord. We come before you with thankful hearts, thanking you for your provision of safety, Lord, for your provision of your word, the daily bread that feeds us spiritually, Lord. We thank you for providing in the past, in the wilderness, Lord, with manna that we were even unthankful for at the moment, even though it was keeping us alive, Lord. We thank you for providing with the blessings of the fish and the loaves, Lord, and dividing them to us when we were so focused on what we were getting from your word that we may have forgot to provide for ourselves, Lord, but we lean on you for provision. And we could see in so many examples and text that you have been faithful and you are always watching over us, providing for our every need. And then we look to the future, Lord, and we have these thoughts of where our next meal will come from, Lord, what our job stability might look like in the future, or what our health might hold in store, forgetting so often how you have provided in the past, Lord, and looking to our own understanding, looking to our own devices, how we will be able to provide for ourselves, Lord, so often losing faith in you. We pray that you would help our unbelief. Remind us, Lord, daily of how you have provided in the past and reassure us that you are still the same God, the same God that built the beautiful garden, how you have intended man to dwell with you, Lord, in spirit and daily communion with you. And then we have turned our back on you, Lord. We have chosen to walk the other way and to seek our own understanding and wisdom and and turn from you, Lord. We pray that you would forgive us. Forgive us for our daily shortcomings, Lord. Please provide more faith in our lives that even though it may go against the grain of what the norm is in the world, Lord, that we would be the, the light in the sin-darkened world, that we would look to you for direction, not our own wisdom. We thank you, Lord, for the message that has gone forth this day. Thank you for speaking through the messenger and blessing him with the, the words that you needed each of us to hear individually. We pray, Lord, that it would not return unto you void, but all that have gathered to hear, whether it's in person or online or in the future from a recording, we pray that each would have been fed from your word this day and grow from it ultimately, Lord. We pray that you would provide throughout the rest of this day 
at all your churches, Lord, throughout the world, not only in the buildings, but your church is a body. We pray that you would use those willing to be used, speak through them to anyone in the world that you would want to hear your message. We pray that they would receive it and that their hearts would be that good, rich soil, ready to receive that seed and have that seed grow into something that we can see, even as you have provided for our future brother to to be Sid through this church, you have provided a, a safe haven, a place for him to come and learn of thee and ultimately give his life for you through this church, Lord. We pray that you would bless them all richly for their work in his life and so many lives before him, Lord, how you have shown your example of love and and what that sacrificial love is to reach out into the sin-darkened world and provide an, a godly example and be that that hospital, that safe place where people can go to learn of thee and be healed of their infirmities. We pray that you would encourage this church, bless them richly for all their love and hospitality and encourage them to be that city on a hill, Lord, that light shining so bright in a sin-darkened world that although we are different from the world, we're different in a good way and we have some hope that the world is looking for and we pray that you would use this church as you have in the past and bless them richly and lord we pray that you would go with us the rest of this day keep us safe and be in our conversations in your son jesus name we pray amen would a brother please select a concluding hymn Hymn number 87. Let's sing the next one. Hymn number 87. The first two verses. If you've ever heard the word hangry, it's a portmanteau, meaning it's a combination word. It's a combination of the words hungry 
and angry. And that's kind of how things get in our house before mealtimes. Seems to be the kids are hungry and I'm hungry and my wife's hungry and we're, you know, have to, have to prepare the meal and kind of everything. And then what a difference between that before the meal and then after the meal. The bellies are full and the conversation flows easily and there's smiles and, you know, I feel a little bit like that this morning. I was fed this morning. I was fed from God's word. He met my needs. And uh, all the, the things that I was uh, upset or angry about or worried about, um, he's answered them. And that doesn't mean I don't need to eat again. I'm going to get hangry again. I'm going to get hungry for God's word again. And I need to, to turn to him. He's the only one that supplies the food that I need. My brothers and sisters, I hope you realize that. He's the only one who supplies the food that you need. My friend outside of Christ, you too. I wanted to offer one correction to what my brother said. Fanny Crosby was not born blind. She was born seeing, but at a very early age, when she was a baby, she had some kind of eye infection and a quack doctor came along. One of these doctors who was just a fake and he told her parents, I'm gonna treat it. He put hot, I think it was hot mustard plasters on her eyes and blinded her for life. So she could say truly in her adulthood, I've never seen anything. She couldn't remember ever seeing anything. Fanny could have lamented that mistake, that horrible thing that her parents allowed to happen, that, that evil man who came along and blinded a helpless baby. But instead, she turned to a God who supplies all things richly, a God who can turn a situation even like that, a horrible situation like that, that he was not the author of. God didn't cause that quack doctor to do that. He didn't create that desert barren landscape that, the, that the, those uh, listening to Jesus found themselves in. He created a lush green earth, a beautiful world that man corrupted through his sin and created dryness and barrenness and hunger. God created everything good, but even more powerful and greater than that, initial act of creation is the act of a God who can redeem every situation of evil. That barrenness and dryness in your life, that hunger, that anxiety, that, that, that unsettledness, whatever it is, he can redeem that with, with his sweet spirit with his son Jesus Christ whom you need to cling to and who you will find is the bread of life who can feed and, and supply every need my prayer is that you would lean on him only this week my friend outside of Christ lean on him for salvation give yourself wholly and completely to him experience new birth my brother and my sister feed from him and nothing else with that we conclude this service